<laughs> and now you know we're recording. My name is Gavin Alexander, uh, and I, uh, my pronouns are he, him, his, and I am the fellow of the SJC Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing, where my focus is on the intersection of well-being and diversity. Equity. Jen, um, I might need your help with something. In the legal profession, um, and we're going to keep trying to keep folks muted uh, unless they are presenting. Um, that being said, uh, once the presenters start, there will be opportunity for question and answer. If you want to unmute yourself at that point to chime in with a question verbally, feel free to do so. Um, alternatively, you are welcome to uh, uh, just chat a question in the chat field, and I'll try to pay attention and monitor those, or chat me directly if you'd like to uh, me to read a question out loud to the presenters. So. Uh, as you heard, we are recording this session uh, and it'll be made available publicly after the fact. Um, so folks who weren't able to attend today are able to still uh, get the benefit of hearing this important process for reporting incidents of bias and discrimination and harassment in the Massachusetts courts. Uh, for those who need uh, live transcription services, those are available. You should be able to uh, turn them on via the buttons at the bottom of the screen or the top sometimes it appears. Uh, so live uh, cart services are being provided. And for those of you attending who need uh, Committee for Public Council Services CLE credit for this program, that is being provided. 1.5 credits will be provided. And we will send an email to all participants after the session to let folks know how to obtain a, a certificate of attendance. Uh, we are tremendously grateful for the co-sponsors of this program today. In addition to the SJC Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing, we have the Boston Bar Association, the Massachusetts Bar Association, the Asian American Lawyers Association of Massachusetts, the Hispanic National Bar Association Region 1, the Massachusetts Association of Hispanic Attorneys, the Massachusetts Black Lawyers Association, the Mass Black Women Attorneys, Mass LGBTQ Bar Association, the New England Muslim Bar Association, South Asian Bar Association of Greater Boston, and the Women's Bar Association. Uh, this is a truly collaborative endeavor, and we're thrilled that all of us were able to come together to uh, make sure this important message gets out to as many lawyers and participants around the Commonwealth as possible. So as a quick substantive introduction, very, very briefly, because I know you're not here to hear from me, uh, the SJC Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing, as many of you know, published a report in February of last year titled Report Summarizing Affinity Bar Town Hall Meetings. Uh, that summarized a number of meetings we held uh, hearing from the members and leaders of the Massachusetts and New England Affinity Bars about their lived experience uh, as practicing uh, as lawyers in Massachusetts today as members of un underrepresented and historically excluded populations. A lot of the feedback we heard had to do with the court experience. And so as a result of that report, we wound up getting a lot of questions from uh, attorneys, law students, professors of clinical programs, you name it, about what to do when they actually saw or experienced incidents of bias and discrimination in the court. Uh, and luckily, just around a year or two before that report was published, an office was set up within the trial court specifically to hear those reports and to investigate them and to handle them. So today, we are tremendously grateful for uh, Maggie Peterson Pinkham, the director of the Trial Court Office of Workplace Rights and Compliance, to be joining her with her team, Katie Corbett, Danny Soto, and Ligia Martinez, to present about the process for reporting incidents 
uh, to that office, how the investigation process unfolds, how resolutions unfold, and what sort of the court overall is doing to try to mitigate these uh, incidents going forward. They are open to questions and answers and even suggestions throughout this program. So if you have something you want to chime in with, um, feel free to put it in the chat. Feel free to raise your hand. I would recommend, if possible, holding some of them toward the end or toward moments when uh, the presenters offer opportunities to ask questions, just so we don't interrupt the flow. But they really do want this to be an interactive program uh, where you can have your questions asked and answered and uh, suggestions heard. So uh, thank you all for joining us here today. Without further, further ado, I will turn it over to the OWRC team. Thank you, Gavin, appreciate it. And again, we can't thank you enough for everyone taking time out of their busy day, starting a new year by meeting with us, listening to us and hearing from us. Um, as Gavin said, he has asked us to uh, go over what our process and procedure is and at the Office of Workplace Rights and Compliance. Um, and we are happy to do that. But I told Gavin, we'll only do this in agreement that we are seeking input and reactions and comments um, from all of you to make it better, to make it more interactive, to make it more transparent. Um, uh, as Gavin said, uh, our, I was aware of your report last year on Super Bowl Sunday because the Chief Justice Carey contacted me and said she wanted me to jump on a Zoom call at four o'clock on Sunday to go over the reports. We, as you know, the report was released on a Friday. We all read it Saturday and she wanted to talk with us immediately on Sunday. So we immediately got to work on how do we address this and how do we respond to this? And I know several of you have been in other affinity bar um, presentations that I've done as an overview of um, our office. And I'm grateful to have the opportunity today to speak more specifically about what we do and how we do it. So with that, I'm gonna ask uh, my program coordinator, Suzette, could you share the slides with everyone? Okay. So uh, as I said, we are uh, the Office of Workplace Rights um, and Compliance. We report directly to uh, Chief Justice Carey and Court Administrator uh, Bayo, at least for another week until we get a new Chief Justice. Um, and my staff is made up of, of manager uh, Katie Corbett, manager Danny Soto, and manager Ligia Martinez, and you will hear from them more um, as we go through the process. So I wanted to share with everyone that as uh, our mission statement as a Massachusetts trial court is that the trial court is committed to providing equal access to justice. That's our mantra, that's our framework, that's how we end and start most of our meetings, that we wanna provide a safe environment and deliver justice with fairness, effectiveness, and efficiency. And we do this by having a professional, well-trained, collaborative, competent, and diverse uh, workforce. It is our goal to provide prompt and courteous service to the public with dedicated professionals who inspire public trust and confidence. And the heart, partly why we do that is being aware by people like you who tell us when we miss the mark, when we don't rise up to our own standards, when misconduct has occurred that cannot be tolerated, needs to be stopped and changed. Next. So as Gavin said, we were established in uh, May of 2019 uh, the trial court um, 
spent some um, money and uh, legislative um, uh, went to the legislature to ask for additional funding to create a new office to fund my positions as well as my staff position um, and also spent time writing a best practice policy based on internal and external stakeholders advising them on how to uh, create a policy and a procedure that follows best practices and is transparent within the guidelines and statutory constraints uh, of, of the trial court itself. So um, by November of 2019, we did promulgate a new personnel policy uh, prohibiting discrimination, harassment, retaliation, as well as a detailed complaint resolution um, procedure that was distributed to all of our court employees and we're trying to get out to all of our court users. For the first time, it created a single comprehensive anti-discrimination policy in the trial court. We always had one, but it was kind of um, dissected into separate parts. We wanted to make it easy to find, we wanted to make it easy to follow. And so we rewrote it into one single policy instead of the previous three that we had. And again, as I said, it's based on best practices in the field of discrimination law, while taking into account the unique statutory aspects of the trial court that we um, have to deal with and, and incorporate and, and take advantage of. I wanna stress that this new policy as it did before, but it does in fact cover all judges, uh, clerk magistrates, uh, court officials, managers, all employees. It also covers all of our service providers such as our interpreters or our vendors um, and also all of the court users. So this applies to all of you and you can use our policy as well and, and interact with us through the complaint process as well. That was the intent from the beginning. Um, and it does set clear expectations and responsibilities for all the individuals as to how they are to embrace the policy and uphold the spirit as well as the specifics of the policy. So the other part of the uh, policy that I wanted to stress is that we did uh, establish multiple channels for receiving complaints, including anonymous complaints. So we do have a hotline number, um, which I think is at the end of our presentation uh, that you can call at any time. Um, that's monitored uh, on a regular basis. We, we set up a unique uh, email address box, fair and equal um, justice for all. Uh, that's a general email box you can send us. We also have an electronic form on mass.gov that people can submit and that um, whether it's the hotline or the mass.gov form, obviously those are the most easiest way to stay anonymous. Uh, we do ask for some information, but none of the fields are required to be um, filled out. And we don't even require a written uh, complaint at all, but obviously it's easier for us to have contact information um, at the very least. So we just try to make it easy for anyone to reach out to us, contact us, so we can contact you back and find out what's going on and how can we help. Um, the new policy that we promulgated also does address requests for accommodations. So we are the office that would help with ADA um, public accommodations. And we'll talk a little bit more about that um, at the end of this presentation as well. Um, the other point we're gonna stress throughout this training is we made it clear that there's a, a strong um, and definitive statement of uh, prohibition against retaliation based on the complaint or participating um, in the investigative process under this policy. And uh, we definitely wanna know not only if there's misbehavior, but also if there's uh, retaliatory conduct happening too. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. So 
finally, we did spend some money to establish um, and obtain an outside vendor who set up a case management tracking system for us. Um, we actually use uh, uh, it from our security department based on their, their complaints. Uh, we've modified it for our purposes. Uh, so we can track the types of discriminations that we're hearing about, um, whether it's the department location. So not only that it was in district court, but it was in Brockton district court, for example, um, we indicate who the parties were, who the appointing authorities that were involved in knowing it. We tracked the disposition, how long it took to get there, what was the um, outcome of that. And then we follow up uh, the follow-up part. So once we did the investigation, then what happened next? Was there appropriate corrective measures? Was there discipline if appropriate? Um, did we train, did we follow up? Was there any retaliation? So it allows us to follow the life cycle of the complaint allows us to monitor how long it took, but then also come up with there are any trends, are there any concerning patterns, are there any uh, concerning repeat offenders that we need to be aware of. Um, and finally, we hope to use that information um, in reporting out on our annual report. We do uh, list out on an annual basis that's available on mass.gov, um, the complaints that we receive, the disposition of those um, complaints. Um, obviously, we, we protect the names and confidentiality of the parties involved, but we do try to be transparent and report out the cases that we have um, handled each uh, uh, fiscal year. Okay. The biggest point I wanna stress here is that the policy made clear, it was always true before, but we made it clear in the policy that there is a need to report to my office any concerns or complaints of misconduct or unprofessional behavior or retaliation or discrimination or harassment. Uh, we stress to all of our leaders of the court, whether they're a judge, the court management or senior management, that they bear a heightened responsibility to refrain from any violation of this policy and to refrain from uh, allowing or um, uh, tolerating their staff to violate this policy. We do require that everyone who is, has awareness that there's a possible violation of the policy to report conduct that's inconsistent with this policy. I do want to stress that reporting does not necessarily lead to an investigation. We will get into this in a little bit more detail, but I do think people worry that once the report is made, the process takes off and it's outside of the reporting party's um, control. What we try to do is determine what's the best way to identify the misconduct, remedy the immediate effects, and prevent its recurrence. Uh, our goal is uh, primarily to stop the conduct from, um, to address the concerns of the conduct that happened and to stop it from preventing again. And then we work with the parties to determine what's the best way forward to do that. Sometimes it's gonna be investigation, sometimes there'll be other methods that we're gonna talk about in a minute, okay? All right, so what happens when we do get a complaint? I just wanna, um, again, be transparent uh, because there are some statutory guidelines as to who handles uh, different complaints. So again, we do get a complaint or a concern, whether it's in person, you know, somebody happens to stop by our office or maybe catch us after a meeting or after a training, they can certainly talk to us in person. They can talk verbally by using our hotline, giving us a call via another office, sometimes human resources or somebody else might refer to us because the person went to a trusted individual and they said, you know, I'm gonna report this to OWRC and get in contact with you that way. Um, it can be written on the online form or through an email through our, um, our email address. 
once we do get a complaint, we have to screen it to make sure it's in fact ours. So if the complaint or concern is against a, a judge, a clerk magistrate, a register, or the recorder, we do send that immediately to the Departmental Chief Justice. I want you to know that, that that is required under the statute that we notify them that a complaint has been made against one of their direct reports. And then when I email them, I usually just say, how would you like us to handle? Can we assist you in any way? And I can tell you most of the time, in the two years that uh, we've been here, the Chief Justice has then directed us to officially conduct a, um, an investigation on their behalf. Um, but I just want to be transparent that when you make a complaint against, say, a judge, my next step has to be to inform the Chief Justice. And they're usually grateful for the report, grateful that you brought it to our attention, and then ask us to investigate it on their behalf so we can work with them to find out what happens next. If the complaint is against uh, the commissioner or uh, senior director um, or a manager within the office of uh, uh, court management, uh, we send those directly to the chief justice and the court um, administrator. Um, and again, it's the same process. I'm simply alerting that one of their direct reports, a complaint was made against them and then ask them if they would like to direct us to do an investigation. And in general, they act, actually let us do. It's just the process we're um, gonna follow. The complaint is made against the actual departmental chief justice. So against Chief Justice Casey or Chief Justice Necton, for example, we would send that directly to Chief Justice Carey in this case, or the next chief justice of the trial court. Um, if the complaint is made against the chief justice of the trial court, we do send that directly to the SJC for, for their help. Um, so just to be clear that we would handle all the other complaints internally ourselves and make our own determination what to handle. But if there's any of those other job titles, I, again, I just want everybody not to be surprised and why did you tell the Chief Justice uh, of this complaint? It's to follow the, the statutory guidelines that we have. But again, they're usually pretty good about asking us to investigate on their behalf. I'm not sure if there's any questions on that or if you wanna pause on that. Okay, okay. Um, if, the, if we, in the initial screening, and by the way, if we do determine it's not ours, um, I would go ahead and refer it and let you know that. So once we do decide it is ours or we've been directed by the Chief Justice to in fact handle it on their behalf, we do have various steps and we're gonna go into more details, but just as an overview, you can see the process. Um, when we get notified of the incident, uh, we set up a file so we can start to track the incident. We do a preliminary inquiry to just to find out what happened and is a possible policy violation involved. If so, we'll do an investigation or try to informally resolve it. That investigation will lead to a written confidential report. We then close the investigations by letting know the parties to the complaint to know the, the outcome of our report and our findings. And then we do a post-investigation work uh, to again, monitor the effects of the incident, make sure that they were um, satisfactorily corrective measures were input, that there was no ongoing retaliation and to make sure that things actually improve and the product, the conduct stops. So that's the general overview of our process. Again, we, we need your help to identify the misconduct so we can correct its effects and prevent its recurrence. And this all starts with you reporting to us. Next slide. Maggie, I think now might be a good time. We actually had a question about, okay. the, about the complaints, which is, are the complaints available through public records or the resolution? Uh, no, very good question. I'm glad you asked. So uh, the uh, 
to um, assure people to participate with us and to assure they're confidentially that they will not, uh, we do not share um, the complaints. They're not on public record. They stay with us in our confidential case management tracking system that I just discussed. It's a confidential file uh, that we keep. Um, obviously, if, if um, goes to Superior Court and it gets subpoenaed, obviously we have to describe, but we do try to maintain the confidentiality of the parties to the extent possible, including the, the final outcome of the report. We do give the parties a, a, written, a detailed written summary of what was found in the report. So they do know the basis of why we found what we found and the analysis and the findings, um, but it was it is not otherwise. We are not as trial court subjected to the normal public records uh, requests or FOIA. Does that answer your question, do you think? Okay. Okay, so um, why don't we break down the process a little bit more? Again, I don't think this is gonna be anything um, surprising. I'm sure it's, it's a process you're very familiar with, because again, it's based on best practices. Um, but I did wanna just take some time and explain to you what we do and how we do it. I do wanna say, as I introduce my managers, who are gonna walk through the steps. They have all been trained um, in workplace investigations, they went through an intensive two-week training process and had to pass an extensive, very difficult exam. Um, so uh, if, uh, in, in addition to their own unique uh, personal and professional experiences and backgrounds uh, to be able to conduct investigations in a fair and impartial manner. And again, I wanna stress, we do not report to human resources. We are not, um, uh, holding, we report directly to the Chief Justice and the Court Administrator who wants to know right from us what happened and what do we suggest um, to, to correct that um, information. So I do appreciate that independence that we've been given by being set up as a unique officer reports directly to the Chief Justice and the Court Administrator. So with that, I'm gonna ask Katie Corbett to start off and to talk to us about um, how do we start the process uh, with the initial inquiry. Thank you, Maggie. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us. As Maggie said, my name is Katie Corbett and I am a manager with the OWRC. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about our inquiry interview process. So the inquiry interview is at that moment in the, in the process after we receive a complaint. Maggie's already gone through, we can receive a complaint in many different ways. Uh, it can be anonymous, it can be on our hotline, uh, you know, someone can reach out to us individually, many different ways. The inquiry allows us though, once an investigator, a manager is assigned to the complaint, we reach out to the reporting party and have as much of an in-depth conversation with them as we possibly can. During this interview, we, uh, you know, we ask uh, as much information, ask for as much information as possible, we ask whether or not there are any witnesses uh, to the complaint, um, you know, behavior or anything like that. That's, this is our opportunity to get as much information as possible. At that point, um, the manager, the investigator, then determines whether the alleged facts as provided by the reporting party, if substantiated, would constitute a policy violation. And then we make a determination if the facts alleged do not constitute a policy violation, then OWRC will refer the incident to another office for work with an administrative office for resolution. Maggie had just mentioned about, you know, sometimes we do, we'll make a referral to HR, you know, because we make a determination that this won't be 
you know, our policy doesn't uh, reflect it. So we will refer to another department like HR for resolution. Um, however, if we find that the facts do allege a policy violation, OWRC will determine the appropriateness of an informal resolution if the reporting party is interested. We want to make clear, um, this is really, it is your complaint. It is the reporting party's complaint. What you're sharing with us, we want you to feel that you have control over this complaint. Um, you know, you're taking the time, you're, you're, you're putting your trust in us. You're telling us what's going on. We want to assist you in any way that we can. This informal resolution, sometimes what that may entail is a simple phone call. Um, you know, something may have happened in, in the courtroom. Uh, someone had a problem with the judge. You know, an informal resolution could uh, include a, a phone call from us to the judge, and that could be, you know, it could be worked out informally that way. That is a, one of our forms of an informal resolu uh, resolution. Um, and then the other way is if the facts do allege a policy violation, OWRC will determine whether a full investigation uh, is required and we will notify the reporting party and the relevant manager. Um, next slide, please. So just to talk a little bit about the informal resolution and the interim measures, uh, referrals, wanna talk a little bit, just a little bit more about that. Uh, just to touch a little bit on the informal resolution. So informal resolutions have been successful in the past because it's an effective tool to address the reported, you know, the alleged bad behavior and get it to stop. Ultimately, that's, I think, what everybody wants to do. Oftentimes, the informal resolution has been the preferred method of the reporting party uh, it, because their complaint is addressed and the behavior that caused them to file a complaint uh, in the first place has ceased. So there's also accountability on behalf of the responding party with the expectation that they're now aware that their offensive or inappropriate behavior and or their comments will not be tolerated um, in this environment. Again, uh, knowing that the majority of people on this, on this uh, Zoom call right now are, are attorneys, it may be a little bit different. Like I've just mentioned about, you know, may, it may be an issue with a judge, maybe an issue with a clerk. So a phone call to us starts a process and uh, you know, uh, uh, communication, but the ultimate goal is to be able to address the behavior that happened within the courtroom or within the courthouse, because as you know, we can't address or do anything about it unless it's reported to us. Um, and we appreciate your, uh, you know, your trust with us to be able to do so. Um, okay, next slide, please. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Ligia Martinez, and I am also a manager of investigations. It's, it's nice to uh, be here today. Um, and I will, I, I'm going to take this opportunity uh, to follow up on what uh, my colleague Kelly was explaining. Um, I'm going to explain the uh, investigation part of our process. Once we uh, go through the inquiry process and we decide that an investigation is necessary, then the next step um, it is to uh, contact the senior manager of that department and um, inform them that we, we have received a complaint, um, explain the allegations, and go over you know, the background information that we have. 
Um, sometimes those managers actually um, are physically, you know, in those departments and they actually might have relevant information about the situation that they can share with us. Um, we also share, you know, the scope of our investigation, what we're gonna be investigating. And, and we request their assistance um, with their assistance with the logistic of um, scheduling the interviews. Uh, we do both. We sometimes um, conduct interviews in person. And when that is the case, we request um, a room uh, where, you know, we, that, where we can uh, conduct our um, interviews uh, and maintain them as confidential as possible. And uh, other times, especially now during uh, COVID, we are um, we're conducting investigations via Zoom. In those cases, we um, you know we we want to make sure that the parties that we interview uh, feel uh, comfortable in the space you know they are. So we oftentimes request um, a separate room and the necessary equipment uh, so that they can participate uh, in the interview via Zoom. And uh, managers, you know, we, we have we have we try to maintain a good relationship with the senior managers, um, so that they can, you know, all of this is, is facilitated to to the to the witnesses and by and different parties that we will be interviewing. Um, the next step is to uh, create uh, an investigation plan, and for that we work uh, closely together. We collaborate with each other. We work with Maggie. We want to make sure that the process is impartial, that we are thorough, and that we're not really um, getting getting um, you know. Um, we want to make sure that we are thorough and that we're really uh, looking into the allegations and making sure that our scope is uh, aligns with the investigation that we're that we're going to be conducting. Um, so we, um, we confirm the initial uh, scope with Maggie. Uh, we uh, determine uh, who is gonna be interviewed, uh, what are, whether there are any relevant witnesses that we need to interview, whether there is information that we haven't collected yet, uh, just as you know, um, videos or documents um, that, uh, that, we, that we might need to request. Um, and we um, create a list of uh, open-ended questions that we uh, will ask each party during interviews, um, focusing on the scope on the investigation always. Um, next slide, please. Um, Um, so during during the when after the, the plan has been created, we contact the responding party, and we usually do do this um, at least twenty four hours before uh, we conduct an interview. We usually contact the party the responding party via email, and we send them a uh, notice of investigations, which include the investigator contact information. A copy, uh, an explanation of the of the allegations that have been made against the against them, um, and um, in in that in that email we also include um, all all WRC process what what our process look like, um, a copy of the policy, um, frequently asked questions, 
as well as a, um, a, a, a chief that include their rights during the investigation, such as um, you know, the right to um, have a representative during the interview. Um, we go over confidentiality, we go over uh, retaliation, um, and we also um, explain their rights uh, you know, to ask for a, for a reasonable accommodation if they have a, a disability. Uh, yeah, um, I, want to, I want to interrupt before you go on with uh, the interviews, because now we've told the responding party uh, the, the allegations of a complaint of misconduct, because uh, there was a great question in the chat, like, what's some real example of, of uh, complaints we want to hear about? So uh, we want to hear anything that is concerning to you that's uh, felt um, unprofessional, disrespectful, uncomfortable, inappropriate. Um, that's enough for We hope you will contact us and then we can decide together the best way forward. But some examples I, I think uh, that we would expect to hear um, from you are uh, you enter uh, the court building and a court officer um, misidentifies you as not being an attorney, but rather the, the, the litigant or a judge misidentifies you in the courtroom as the interpreter and not um, an attorney um, or somebody refuses to pronounce your name correctly or use your preferred pronouns. Um, uh, and obviously, um, you know, other more serious investigations, but those uh, acts of disrespect, those acts of uh, uh, microaggression and harassment um, should not be tolerated, should not be allowed and need to be stopped. And while we do um, do proactive training, we do a lot of outreach with our members having real uh, scenarios in real time and saying, but this just happened yesterday and we need to talk about it and we need to address it and we need to stop this behavior. Um, we want to hear about it and we want those reports of th that kind of behavior. And certainly if you witness something too, um, it's not always on the reporting party's shoulders to have to bring this forward, especially if say they're a younger attorney and they're a, a little bit concerned about their reaction in the courtroom or their, their uh, reputation or career, we get that. So we're also hoping that we all report on each other's behalf, that if you've witnessed a judge being disrespectful to somebody else, you witness a clerk's employee not treating somebody well um, at the counter, uh, we wanna know about those things. And again, part of what we're trying to explain is we'll work with you on a case-by-case -case basis to determine the best way forward. Again, it's not always gonna be an investigation. Sometimes it can be a call to the clerk magistrate. Can we talk about what was observed by your employees today? It might be a call to the chief justice. Hey, I heard this um, happened yesterday in the courtroom. Let's talk about a best way forward. Or it may be an, an investigation is warranted to really get at the root of what happened. It'll be a case by case basis. But we wanna hear about all misconduct that makes you feel disrespected, unappreciated, unvalued, or unwanted in the courtroom. We wanna stop that. Sorry, if I could quickly jump in with another yeah. question. Yep. Um, another question was asked about the fiscal year 2020 report yep. and about the 17% number, which I know yep. is slightly misleading, right? So Maggie, if you could give a little bit more clarity, I think the, the actual substantiated report uh, complaints that actually went to investigation was a lot higher number, right? 
Yeah, so um, my office has been here. I think we've reported two years out. Uh, we had been reporting complaints before that. Uh, so I'll be honest with you, each year we get a little bit better as to how we're um, being clear about our numbers. So uh, last year, I think we rolled up of all of the um, complaints we received, 17% um, of them were found um, substantiated. That is misleading because we don't include substantial or unsubstantiated in anything that was informally resolved. You know, if, a, if a, a, a chief court officer calls me and says, I observed some um, inappropriate behavior toward an attorney today, I met with my court officer, we gave him a written warning. Uh, he's been disciplined accordingly. Uh, that to me is what would be an example of an informal resolution, meaning we didn't need to do an investigation. The conduct was addressed. The conduct was written up. There was corrective measures. So we would put that in what we call the informal resolution pile. Um, and so of the substantiated um, uh, resolutions are only those that we actually did a, 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 investigation and had a formal report. So I think when you break out what was informally resolved and addressed and what was actually investigated, the investigation has um, so far today proven to be about 50% uh, are found substantiated of the investigation. And we've got to figure out a better way to clarify the ones that are informally resolved. Uh, what were those that were dismissed uh, because it really was not based on a protected category. And again, I want to stress, none of this has to do with the fact that the behavior was unacceptable. It just is my, our office finds was there violations of discrimination or anything based on a protected class. So we're still trying to work through better, clear reporting on how this all works. Thank you, Gavin, for letting me explain that a little bit. So I do know those numbers are concerning and I want to get them right and be transparent with what we're doing and what we're finding. Okay, all right. Leah, do you wanna continue on with uh, how we conduct investigations? Of course. Um, and so I, I actually, I would like to go over now um, how we conduct interviews. Um, I would like to clarify that we do not, um, we do not record our interviews. Um, we rely on the, on the statements that we receive from the different parties. Uh, if they submit written statements to us, which we, um, you know, we, we highly recommend doing. Um, and we also um, take notes during the investigation, during the interview. Um, we also, um, so like I said, we, uh, we uh, have, you know, a series of questions that we ask during, during the interview. Uh, we ask follow-up questions depending on uh, the statements that we receive. And um, oftentimes we circle back to the um, reporting party and responding party because we wanna be as impartial as possible uh, and fair. And we want to provide everyone with an opportunity to respond to any statements that are provided to us with, you know, during the interviews. Um, and, and so, you know, like I said, every, um, a statement that we receive, every notes that we take, we all, uh, we uh, document everything and we keep it um, in, in a file as well. Uh, next slide. 
Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Danny Soto, and I'm a manager of workplace rights with the Office of Workplace Rights and Compliance. And what I'm going to discuss is our confidential investigative report. So after we do an inquiry and we interview all the relevant witnesses, what we do is we take all that information and we make a confidential investigative report. So the key thing to focus on is confidential because not everyone sees the actual report. The actual report will contain all the information that we gathered during the course of our interview, and that will be shared uh, typically if it, if it involves a judge and a clerk magistrate, the report will only be shared with the departmental chief justice. So the departmental chief justice will receive a copy of the confidential report, which will contain everything uh, that we un uncovered during the course of the investigation. However, everyone else will receive a summary, which I will get into later. So the investigator prepares draft of report including summarizing the relevant information from each party, witnesses, and from documents or other materials reviewed, consistent with policy, sends to director of OWRC for review, which is director Peterson Pinkham, and uh, director Peterson Pinkham will review uh, the report. So after well, the reporting process, I, I wanna break that down. What we do is we draft a summary of witness interviews. So we'll have a summary of, in the, in the confidential investigative report, we'll have a summary of all the information we gathered from witnesses that we interviewed. And then after that, we will get to uh, the analysis. And in the analysis, that's when we compare the information we gathered to the Massachusetts trial court policy. And based on the information we gathered in the trial court policy, we will make a determination as to whether or not the information we receive rises to the level of a violation of the trial court policy, or if it did not. If we determine that it does rise to the level of a violation, then we will find the complaint substantiated and we will find that a violation occurred. However, if we find that it doesn't rise to the level of the trial court policy, then we will determine that uh, uh, it's unsubstantiated in that a violation did not occur. Um, it's key to keep in mind that this is an impartial investigation and the information we receive determines the outcome as we compare it to the Massachusetts child court policy. It's not what we believe or how we think. We, strict, we, we're, we just receive the information, we gather it, we analyze it, compare it to the child court policy and make a determination. About half of our complaints will have the allegations substantiated. And I think um, Maggie just answered the question um, in the, on the last slide. Basically, um, we, we find some cases are substantiated. However, we do have informal resolutions where there are times where someone will say they don't wanna go forward. And we believe that they have the right to do what they wanna do with their complaint, but we are concerned about uh, what takes place. And so someone will agree to do training. Someone will get a written warning. And so there are ways that those are uh, resolved without us actually having to find us or make a finding of substantiated. So the other thing is the director will notify parties that the investigation has concluded and will provide these parties with a written summary of the report and whether it is more likely than not that the policy was violated. So let me break this down. We call it a closed letter. When we conclude an investigation, as I said, the report containing all the information 
especially if it's against a clerk or a judge, goes to the chief justice. And then the parties involved will receive what's called a closed letter. And in that closed letter, what we will do is we will provide them with the information, the analysis that led us to making the finding, whether it is substantiated or unsubstantiated. Um, in that letter, they won't receive all information because again, confidentiality is most important. So let's say, for example, uh, the reason why a report was substantiated is because the responding party had a history of, of doing such behavior. We won't let the reporting party know everything that the responding party did in their past that led to the report being substantiated. We would just let them know that the report was substantiated because we have to maintain the confidentiality of the other employee. So it's one of those things where we share as much information as possible to the parties involved to let them understand why we reached our conclusion while maintaining confidentiality. But of course, say the chief justice will know everything about our investigation. Another thing I wanna to touch upon is the standard we use. Now, if we're talking about a Massachusetts trial court employee, then the standard is preponderance of the evidence, whether it's more likely than not. But if we're talking about a clerk or if we're talking about a judge, the standard is elevated to clear and convincing evidence. So to give you an example, if the complaint is against a court officer, the standard would be preponderance of the evidence. However, if the complaint was against a judge or a clerk, the standard is elevated to clear and convincing evidence. Okay, so we provide a copy of the summary report to the relevant manager for follow-up. Again, if it's a clerk or a judge, it goes to the chief justice. But if it's a court officer or any other probation officer, any other position with the Massachusetts trial court, we will provide the closed letter to the relevant manager so that they can monitor the situation for possible retaliation. I was speaking uh, with my microphone on mute. <laughs> I actually, I, I wanted to add um, uh, in, in, you know, just following up with uh, what Danny was explain, explaining that um, sometimes we also might find that, you know, they, they um, we, we might find uh, uh, an allegation not to be so substantiated, but we might find that the behavior was unprofessional. Um, and we will uh, also, you know, we can we can make that finding uh, within our re report as well. Um, so just, you know, just to follow up on that as well. Um, and so I, I wanted to explain also that um, after the report is uh, concluded and it is provided to management, we do not close the, the case. We wanna make sure that retaliation does not happen so we try to follow up with the reporting party, um, as well as the responding, uh, as well as the responding, responding party um, and managers, um, you know, within 40 to 60 days of the completion of the investigation. Um, sometimes we, after concluding uh, the report and, and sending the closed letters, we make recommendations to management 
we we um, we provide trainings. We uh, provide facilitate facilitated dialogue. Um, and so after we conclude the investigation, we don't want to leave it there. You know, we want to uh, take any preventative measures um, and ensure that the behavior doesn't happen again. Um, and so we also have our follow-up process um, in, the, in, in all cases. Uh, thank you, uh, Lihia. Um, Gavin, I know that there's um, some questions, um, but why don't, we're just gonna finish up. Uh, uh, Katie wants to just do some more post-investigation follow-up, and then we can get to some of the questions. Or who was going to talk about the trainings? I forget which of the team. Is that you, Lihia? Okay, go ahead. Uh, Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Okay. Um, so we, <laughs> I guess I was explaining this during the, the um, follow-up uh, section of this uh, presentation. Uh, like I said, we sometimes suggest uh, training, um, facilitated dialogue. We um, currently have, um, uh, a, a training coming out, which is um, about um, upstander intervention. Uh, we also have a professionalism and uh, civility in the workplace training, um, which had been really well received, uh, you know, within the workforce uh, of the of the trial court. And yeah, is there anything that you would like to add, Martin? No, nope, that's good. Gavin, uh, thank you, Lee. I appreciate it. Gavin, did, do you want to? Go through some of the questions. Sure. Uh, so I've been uh, keeping track of the questions in the chat field, and I'm going to do my best to uh, bring them up in the order they were asked. So first off, um, someone asked, please elaborate on other important matters of types of bias and discrimination to report, because I think that was mentioned as a as a sort of type of thing you could report. Uh, yeah, so our office takes concerns and complaints if you have reason to believe it's based on a protected category, so discrimination or harassment based on your identity, uh, gender, race, religion, military status, disability concerns, uh, we would handle those. Um, when we were talking about referring perhaps to human resources, um, that's usually more probably internal for our employees, like um, during COVID, um, it's not uncommon that people have called us and concerned that they were penalized for sick time. Um, it's really not based on their identity. They just wanted to get that resolved. So we'll work with them. And, but we really refer that to HR because that's um, more bell realm to, to fix that. Um, or just, you know, perhaps uh, supervisors just, um, uh, or they, there's a feeling of a hostile work environment. It's not really based on identity. It's just tensions are high and there's a lot of conflict in the office. Um, we may work with the department. We may work with HR uh, to resolve those issues, but they're not typically ours. But generally speaking, our complaints are uh, when there's misconduct because of somebody that doesn't have a race, ethnicity, gender, religion, or disability, or that kind of a concern. Thanks, Thanks Maggie. So next is, do you have any suggestions for making a report where the victim is concerned that as the only person of their ethnicity regularly appearing in that court, the judge will likely know who made the complaint, even if they proceed anonymously? Correct. Um, that is a concern that does happen in some of the different courthouses, absolutely. And just so you know, it actually happens with some of our employees and some of the smaller courthouses. Uh, 
there may not be a lot of diversity and they do worry that it's going to be obvious to everybody um, who's a report. That's why we stressed and why Danny and Katie and Lehia all said, we work with the reporting parties to say what happened and what's going to feel like it was appropriately addressed because we value and respect that you want to stay anonymous. It does limit some of our options to how to handle it, but it doesn't stop us. So we can talk about, could I at least tell the chief justice about it? Could I at least bring it to their attention? And maybe we make it a point to focus in on the spring conferences when all the judges are together to remind all the judges that this is inappropriate and an unacceptable behavior. Uh, maybe the chief justice, when he goes to visit the different court departments, uh, so maybe when uh, Chief Nectum decides she wants to visit the Hamden County Courthouse, she brings everybody together and, and talks to everybody about their expectations and realities. So uh, it's not uh, necessarily the best way to attack it, but it does allow for let's at least uh, remind everybody the conduct, let's tell them very firmly that this is unacceptable, that consequences will happen. Um, and, that's just an idea that comes to mind of how we help protect an anonymity. The other reality though, is when people report to us on an anonymous basis, it does allow us to track that, to have real data, to say, we're gonna follow the trends, we're gonna follow the pattern, because likely you may have reported this, but maybe somebody else re also reported, and then maybe somebody else also, reported. unfortunately, I'm just, worst case scenario, this is ongoing. We can roll that up, and say, we've gotten three or four complaints now. Um, and so we can protect your anime now because now we have real data to uh, support them. Obviously we do respect uh, responding party's right to respond to allegations, but uh, we will work with you um, and announce to do everything we can to protect them and come up with some creative ways to still address the conduct. Thanks, Maggie. And on the affirmative side, I'll just also highlight that when OWRC hears about trends in certain courts or certain districts, they can work with the uh, Trial Court Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Experience, led by John Lang, to have just general trainings about specific sort of racial empathy or other types of equity issues for that court without having to treat it as a remedial action or a uh, disciplinary type of proceeding, which could out, quote unquote, out the reporting part. Um, yep. So next uh, yep. Next question was gonna be, what's the typical timeline for an investigation from complaint to closing letter? I'll, I'll admit it's too long. Um, and we're working on that. We are actually in the process uh, last week and this week of interviewing more staff. As you can see, it's four of us. And we have 6,000 employees and, um, and all of you as, as court users. So we clearly don't have enough staff, but the trial court recognizes that and is allowing us to hire more staff. We are very aware of uh, how long it takes, uh, which is why we do offer the informal resolution to some people. You know, if we can just, have the chief sit down and talk to them and resolve it um, as soon as possible. That's great. Uh, investigations do take time. They, people do have rights. We are mindful of that. Um, our employees are unionized. They, there's a grievance process. Some of this will take long through nobody's fault. Uh, but we are very conscious that we are intentionally trying to shorten the time 
between getting that um, complaint and, and, and getting a resolution for you, which is again, why we'll work with the reporting party to say, let's be honest and transparent about what this will be. How does that feel to you? Uh, what can we do in the interim in the most immediate? And then what can we do in the long term to make sure it follows? So, um, but it also varies on the complaint. If it's just uh, two people and it's uh, only one witness involved, maybe we can do that you know, in a matter and then actually write the report and then actually get the closed letters. Um, that might take a couple of weeks. Um, some we do have 20 witnesses and, and it's a complicated case. And while we value uh, promptness and, and getting to a resolution as quickly as possible, we also value thoroughness. And we will not apologize for taking our time to interview who we have to interview and ferret out what we have to ferret out and get to the bottom of what we need to get to the bottom of. So some of them will take longer because we think that's the right thing to do. Thanks. Next question is, what is the procedure when a complaint is against a manager? What steps or processes are there in place for those situations? So it's the exact same procedure. Um, if it's a case specialist making a complaint against their office manager, we report that up to the clerk ma magistrate. If it's uh, a court officer making a complaint against their chief court officer, we, we push that up to the commissioner. Um, so, uh, you know, employees can bring complaints against their managers, and then we bring it up to their manager and work through that process. So, in some way, apart from the statutory obligations to notify the chief justice, the title to us doesn't matter. Um, you can report your supervisor, you can report your supervisor's supervisor, and then we'll just take it up the next step and form them and work that and then follow that. So, you know, it's uh, we're not, managers are not separate, managers are not treated differently, managers are held to the same standard, and we'll go through the same process as, as everybody else. Thanks. Next, can a reporter waive confidentiality in the event that future reporters raise complaints about the same offender? Restated, can a victim ensure future victims will be able to learn if they are victims of a repeat offender? Yes, um, I mean, I'll, I'll say that that's the goal. Um, again, you know, we do have a case track management system so we can be monitoring this. And so we can know if, um, you know, let's circle back to the original first two reporters because now we've got a third and now maybe nobody wants to be anonymous. That's the, the goal. Again, uh, we are short staffed. Maybe sometimes we skip that step. It won't be intentional, um, but we do try to track our cases and monitor uh, 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 if there was connection to other reports, so we can circle back and say, you know, you said you wanted to be anonymous before, are you willing to change, um, to take that away? Um, absolutely, That's that would be a, a goal of ours to, to circle back um, and, and see if they want to participate more fully this time or not and just leave it as the report. Again, we would, the reporting party would stay in control of their report. Thanks, Maggie. Uh, next is, do you have any suggestions for best practices you can offer to other organizations, government entities, or companies interested in developing a similar incident reporting and investigation process? Um, yes, I would say, first of all, get a guarantee of staff. Uh, once we start this process, uh, we're explaining. So uh, the year before I started, uh, the trial court received um, or documented uh, 60 cases that they investigated. Um, my first year, half of which was during a pandemic, we uh, jumped up to 
um, 85 uh, complaints. This year to date, only six months into this fiscal year, we have 110 uh, cases. So we've doubled every year of, of our cases. Um, and I'm expecting that now that all of you know about our complaints, uh, we'll really, I'm hoping that we hear much more from you, which is why we're being proactively in trying to build our staff so we can be responsive, we can shorten the time of the complaints and, and get your complaints and actually make changes. But I also want to stress, you know, me personally, it's not just about doing the investigation. That's important. We have to do it fair and partially professionally, which I'm so thrilled and confident with my staff. I have to say our reports are well accepted and well received, whether it's by the Chief Justice or an arbitrator or the MCAD. We're doing a good professional job on the investigation, but that's just half of it. Our focus really is on stopping the conduct and changing the culture and making sure this doesn't happen again. And that takes time and effort um, as well. So I would just, you know, personally, I think you can't just go into trying to do investigations um, and you have to go into with the mindset to change the policy. We happen to be in a culture where the chief justice and court administrator on down supports our efforts and supports our time in doing the post-investigation work as well. And I value that as a culture to make us be successful. Um, so uh, I would just advise that I think that part of the process is just as important as, as making sure you have competent, impartial investigators who have the trust of the parties of both sides that they're going to be fair and impartial and find the investigation. Okay. Thanks. Uh, a, a quick question came in to the chat that I want to re-emphasize, re which is just can it, these complaints be made by non-lawyers or are they exclusively for lawyers? And I no. knew the answer to that one, which is anyone can make a report. And we encourage whether it's you uh, the, as the actual uh, quote unquote victim of the incident of bias, or if even if you witness an incident you believe to be a bias or discrimination, or your client witnesses a incident of bias or discrimination, or your client's friend who happens to be there with them for the day. Anyone can make these reports uh, via any of the methods Maggie's highlighted via the hotline, uh, which is phone number, via email, or via the online complaint form. Um, so really encourage everyone. The court needs to be hearing about incidents in order to uh, both uh, take remedial action and take affirmative positive action to make sure certain courts that may need more training than others get that type of training. Um, so right. one, go ahead. I just want to stress that we don't expect anybody to know the special language. We don't expect anybody to know if there was a protected class and if so, which one. All somebody has to know is this was disrespectful. This is inappropriate. This is unprofessional. Call us, reach out to us, whether you're a pro se litigant, whether you're just a, a vendor in the courthouse and you observe something. I just hope people will contact us and then we will go from there and work it out, which again is why we have a lot of informal resolutions because people do contact us. Now, mind you, I get complaints that uh, uh, as a juror, I shouldn't have to pay parking to do jury duty. We get those complaints. Um, so we do, uh, we, and we try not to uh, just drop somebody off. Um, we try to work them out and get them to the right office. Uh, you got to call the jury commissioner about that. But we would rather people reaching out to us and contacting us about conduct that they saw or experienced, whether they're a lawyer or just a visitor in the courtroom, um, call us, contact us, and let's work together on whether we can resolve it or whether somebody else is in a better position to uh, address that conduct. Absolutely. 
Awesome, thank you. Uh, so, um, uh, quick. So, next question was: um, a language access attorney uh, receives information about LEP persons being hung up or told there's no one that speaks their language to help them. These are individuals that are getting no access and likely are not aware of OWRC and the fact that they can that that they even can make a complaint. Many times, these individuals cannot get names of who they spoke to as they don't speak English or they've been hung up on. We uh, usually have the name of the court and perhaps the language of the individual. Would this be enough information to make a complaint to OWRC to try to stop this behavior? Um, and uh, then the secondary question, is the complaint form available in other languages? Um, so first of all, on the uh, LED language, absolutely let us know. Um, I know Sybil uh, Martin, the director of, uh, of OLA, would definitely want to know about it. Should be very receptive to it, and a little information is better than none. So again, you know, we'll do what we can with what information we have, but we would definitely accept that and, and, and take that in and, and try to get to the bottom of what happened and why. So absolutely, let us know. Um, so yeah, on the on the posters that we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, in fact, um, Suzette, maybe you can go to the poster slide. Or maybe not. Um, you may need to reshare, Suzette. We lost the sharing. So, um, and I'm going to jump over uh, Danny because he's going to talk about this. In fact, Danny, why don't you add in? But I'll just note at the bottom there's a QR code. It's my understanding that that does lead you to different languages, including the complaint form. But I'll confirm that it's a really good point. Um, I should make sure that that actually happens. Because while the policy and procedure are in different languages, I uh, I will need to confirm whether the complaint form itself is. So thank you for bringing that to our attention. We'll look into that. But Danny, do you want to talk just a little bit about the um, poster campaign we have? Sure. Uh, we have a poster campaign. And as you can see, here's one of our posters. And the goal is to encourage court users and attorneys to contact our office, but also to make them aware of our office. We have six different posters posted uh, throughout trial courts in Massachusetts. We have at minimum six uh, to eight, depending on the size of the courthouse. And each poster deals with a different form of harassment or discrimination. Um, as you can see, there's uh, the QR scan code, which will allow people to easily access our office. And also for people who may speak a different language, uh, to access our office and speak with us. Um, as Maggie stated, we are in contact with Sybil Martin. We work with Sybil Martin. So if there was a language that we needed to, or if there was a translation issue, a communication issue, we can get an interpreter to assist us with an interview uh, through Sybil Martin. And I know that she'd be interested in that as well. So uh, that's something that we do. Again, our, our goal is to make people aware of our office and to uh, encourage everyone to contact us. This is one um, poster. There are other posters for, say, um, sexual harassment, another poster for, say, possibly uh, racial discrimination. And we have these posters that show examples. Like someone said, what are some examples? These posters show some examples. They give someone the idea that okay, I experienced something that made me uncomfortable. Let me reach out to uh, the Office of Workplace Rights and Compliance. 
Um, I did, Dan, if we have time, we, we did want to um, just go over a, the fact that we also handle disability and public accommodation requests. Should we do that or do you think we should answer questions first? Um, finish the presentation and then we can finish out with everything else. Okay, so Suzette, do you mind going back to um, the slides about the ADA task force? Katie, do you want to talk a little bit about our work with ADA? Yep, sure thing. Um, so we uh, have recently, uh, I believe within the last year, so an ADA task force, specifically ADA Title II, uh, because we're a state agency, uh, Title II of the ADA, uh, we've co-chaired with uh, Betsy Barrett, who is an attorney with the legal department, uh, to create a task force uh, to, create, to enhance training and services provided by ADA coordinators. Uh, the task force goals, they, you know, they met, they, they have a few goals. Um, some of them, for instance, they want to review existing policies and processes uh, related to court user requests for accommodations. Uh, they want to revise policies or create new ones. And they want to create one, actually another thing that's really, um, one of the things that we're working on in the task force is creating new forms for ADA accommodation requests. Uh, in fact, we've done a search, you know, across the country, uh, researched various different uh, court systems in every state of the, of the country, trying to figure out, you know, the best practice for an ADA reasonable uh, accommodation form. Uh, we also, uh, another goal for the task, Title II task force is to recommend clear and report, a clear reporting structure to review and respond to grievances uh, or complaints uh, and respond to questions about the ADA accommodation process. Uh, we want to make this as clear as possible. And, you know, so if someone has a, a, a concern or a complaint about the uh, reasonable accommodation request that they filed, um, they feel that, that it wasn't addressed properly, we want to be able to make sure that they know exactly where to go and to report that, you know, that concern, that complaint, uh, so they can, the grievance process can continue in a, in a timely fashion. So the, just to quickly look at the, okay, the current policy. Um, so the, the trial court's current uh, ADA accessibility policy, it advises its employees and the public that it doesn't discriminate on the basis of a person's disability uh, in employment or in access to its program services and activities. We also would like to talk, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, best practices so best practices in, in regards to uh, ADA is we wanna have proper training for the ADA coordinators uh, and ultimately all trial court personnel. We wanna have, we wanna give notice to the public of their opportunity to request an accommodation under the ADA. And we want notice of the trial court's grievance procedure. Um, you know, if their request for an accommodation is denied. Wanna make sure that this is, you know, all out there clear and concise, e um, equally accessed, and that's considered one of our best practices. We're also hoping to establish relationships with outside resources to assist litigants. Uh, this has to do with, you know, dealing or collaborating with other Massachusetts state agencies uh, to deal with various litigants because we just learned recently that we actually had um, a court user responded, they reached out to another court agency. 
thankfully you were able, we have those lines of communication open. We were able to address the situation, address uh, the issue and, and moved on from there. Um, again, it's all about communication and that's what we're encouraging. And we wanna build up those relationships with other agencies, as well as you know, affinity groups, such as um, you know, the, the groups that many of you belong to here on the Zoom. So we wanna be able to work with each other and um, you know, create a, a, a great process that is clear, transparent, and easily accessed. Next slide, please. So ADA issues, uh, just to talk a little bit about ADA coordinator training, because we, we realized how important that is. The ADA coordinators are the contact person in each courthouse throughout the Commonwealth. They are the direct go-to for anyone coming into the court who needs to request a, you know, an accommodation. So with that, realizing the importance of that and, and how, how important training is, uh, the trial court in conjunction with the Judicial Institute uh, put together a ADA coordinator training, and I believe it's called, let me see, it is Bridges, it's called Bridges to Justice, and it's the role of the ADA coordinator in the trial court, um, because oftentimes these ADA coordinators, they take on the role, they don't realize the importance of it, or they may realize the importance of it, but we want to be able to make sure that we provide them the tools, the information, the support that they need, because in turn, it's only going to assist and help the court users that are coming in making um, such requests. Let's see. Um, also, um, we also, uh, our office uh, has created a new ADA compliance manager position, which is going to deal primarily with public accom accommodation issues. So when issues come in, as opposed to you know, uh, issues that revolve around retaliation, discrimination, harassment, the ADA compliance manager will deal with, uh, you know, the grievance process, what's going on if someone was denied an accommodation. Um, you know, the man, this manager is, is, is um, the expectation is, is being able to help the process with the court user coming into the courthouse um, and dealing with, you know, judges or clerks and, and just, you know, acquiring as much information as possible, working with the ADA coordinator uh, and trying to come to a, a, a good resolution. Uh, and ultimately, uh, we also assist once in a while HR with ADA accommodation complaint resolution. Uh, so we do work with them. Again, we were collaborative. We work uh, in conjunction with other departments within the trial court. And um, this is yet another thing that we do. Thank you, Katie. Welcome. Pam, I think we have about 10 more minutes. So um, are there some more questions we can address? Yes, there are. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Katie, for that um, as well. I'm going to actually start with a couple follow-up questions about that ADA stuff, and then we'll move back to the more general questions about the uh, trial court policies. So um, on the ADA, uh, um, one uh, participant just noted that there are cases where judges may make ADA accommodation decisions in court, sometimes in open sessions, and potentially without an interactive process, and just wondering about whether that's on the task force's agenda. Do you yes. have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. At, at the moment, uh, we're still working through that. The judge does get to control their courtroom. 
Um, and so uh, we're working with that. We're also, we have, the trial court has uh, an office called Judicial Institute where they do the judges trainings um, uh, throughout the year in mentoring uh, ships of judges as well as our fall and spring conferences with the judges. So we're also working with them on, on training up the judges on how they handle ADA in their courtrooms. Thanks. Um, so then will the task force engage with the community of Massachusetts disability advocates in order to ensure that the design of the ADA accommodation forms and procedures for making requests are accessible? Yes, it, it is definitely our intent to reach out for input and insight and also to start to build those relationships. Um, so uh, we can uh, get, get the best advice and guidance from those of you who uh, do this on a daily basis and are very attuned to the actual real needs and struggles and barriers um, that your clients may face. So uh, we would welcome the input and the guidance as well as establishing a, a good strong working relationship between your agency and ours, absolutely. Anybody who wants to reach out and start to make that connection, Katie Corbett is our ADA manager. I can't stress enough to please contact her directly. We'd love to start some introductory conversations and meetings and decide how we can best work together and how we best do transfer that language, uh, information about what we're thinking and your input and guidance. And then how do we um, incorporate that into our task force work? So please, please reach out to us so we can start that conversation. Definitely. Thank you. And Katie, what is your email address so we could pop it in there? Oh, sure. Um, it is Kathleen.Corvid. So it's C-A-T-H-L-I-N dot Corbett, C-O-R-B-I-T-T -T, at J-U-D dot state dot M-A dot U-S. Great. Um, right, I put that in the chat. Um, so uh, I think that's all on the ADA. So get, getting back to some of the more general questions. Are, could you give just a couple examples of the accountability mechanisms that have been employed to address grievances or complaints? So um, that's a really good question. Um, our office, the way the policy has been set up, um, and again, we've been in existence for about two years. Uh, so we inherited a policy where we do the investigations, we draft a, a complaint um, confidential investigative report. We share that with the appropriate appointing manager um, uh, who, who will help with the disposition of it. They accept our findings or they ask us to do more investigations. Um, uh, but once we both um, have accepted our findings and we determine, let's say the policy has been violated and the allegations are substantiated, we do then turn it over as we indicated to that appointing manager to be responsible to take corrective measures. Um, and so it is in their hands as to what to do next. Again, whether if the employee is a union employee, there is a grievance procedure involved. If the employee is a manager employee by statute, they actually have their own unique personnel committee that they can go to and follow that disciplinary process. So in some sense, um, our job is done, um, but we do, retain the authority and ability to maintain and follow up. We want to make sure that the corrective measures got implemented. We want to make sure that if training was uh, required, that that got done. If discipline was um, 
recommended that that got inputted. So our responsibility to assure that something happens as a result is mostly to monitor and check in with the manager and say, uh, where are we at with this? What's happening? And again, following up with the parties to make sure there was no retaliation. But we don't issue the discipline and we don't get to um, implement the discipline. We can just monitor and make sure that it in fact happens. Thanks, Maggie. But in terms of the actual actions, are you aware of any that you could sort of concrete? Like, I, I know, for example, at least one employee has been fired as a result of complaints that came through this process. Um, Anything else like that beyond firing? Yeah, so, um, you know, if it's, let's say it's a court officer who was disrespectful to an attorney coming through the courthouse. Um, uh, you know, we would, and let's say it's determined that the allegations are substantiated. We, we do follow progressive discipline. So the first thing we would do to say, is this a written warning? Is this a second warning? Is this a suspension valid? based on the theories of progressive discipline. Um, and uh, you know, they would, uh, again, go through the grievance procedure and have a right to um, have that grievance hearing handled. Uh, but you know, we do follow progressive discipline measures. So if this is not the first time this has happened to the person, we do get to escalate it accordingly. There have been some cases where um, uh, a, a trial court employee contacted a court user inappropriate, let's say through Facebook, um, and that felt harassing. Uh, we've put them on paid administrative leave immediately to, to keep everybody safe and to keep the parties separate. Um, and then we, we follow through on the investigation and disciplinary process that way. Um, so I guess uh, I'm kind of struggling in the five minutes we have left to come up with a lot of uh, good example because it really is a case-by-case -case basis it really is if this is the first time this has ever happened if this is the third time this has happened if you know where the progressive discipline concepts fall within those guidelines Dan, i actually have have an example i dealt with a case where um an employee was ordered to have an evaluation um and then based on the result of the evaluation it determined whether or not the employee would stay um you know hired and employed by the Massachusetts trial court. It's real difficult to give examples out of hypotheticals because it's a case by case basis. And depending on the information we receive during the course of the investigation is what we really do to try to take corrective measures and to change the behavior. I had another case where someone was ordered to take one-on-one -on -one sensitive racial insensitivity training um, as well. So um, those are just some examples, um, but there are several, but when you're on the spot, it's real difficult. To no, no, I think that's actually perfect. <laughs> this is a good range of, of examples you provided, and I think that's really useful information. Um, the uh, Another question, actually somewhat of a question and suggestion, is um, since a lot of the court proceedings are still happening over Zoom, would it be possible to include OWRC's number on Zoom hearings or in Zoom waiting rooms to make sure that court users, especially now that uh, the trial court has, again, suspended trial uh, proceedings for at least a little while uh, right. to make sure that this information is getting out to court users even during the virtual era. Oh, I love that. That's a great idea. Thank you for that suggestion. It's a great idea. Awesome. Um, so we only have a few minutes left. Uh, if I didn't get to your question, um, please feel free to email it to me. Uh, I'll put my email in the chat. Uh, 
and I can make sure it gets to the panelists. I do have a couple quick announcements uh, before we conclude, but for now, I wanna thank our panelists so, so much. The OWRC, as you have all heard, is here to help with this, these issues that we've experienced, uh, and that is their full-time job. Uh, they want to hear from you. They want to hear from all about the incidents that are occurring so that we can make the trial court a better, safer, more inclusive place. So thank you all for your time. Thank you um, for having us, Darren. Sorry? Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Uh, as a couple quick announcements before we all jump off, um, there are some upcoming programs uh, that are addressing sort of similar topics and similar issues that I wanted to flag. Uh, first is that on um, uh, January 19th through 21st, um, the uh, CPCS Children and Family Law Division is hosting a training on how to file a discrimination complaint with the HHS Office of Civil Rights. So that's on the federal side. Um, and I can pop the link to that program in the chat. Um, then, uh, and that's on January 19th from 2 to 4 p.m. On February 2nd from 5 to 6.30 p.m., uh, the, uh, uh, excuse me, the Massachusetts Bar Association, uh, their DEI and Lawyer Wellbeing Committees are hosting a program called Combating, in Combating Incidents of Bias in the Workplace and Courtroom. And a lot of the same folks you'll, you've heard from today will be also presenting there. Uh, and um, uh, along with some others, including a few judges. So that should be an exciting program. Uh, and then the uh, Institute for Lawyer Well, the Institute for Wellbeing in Law, which is the organization that came out of the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing, is hosting its first ever annual virtual conference, uh, January 19th to 21st. I'll put the link to that in the chat. Uh, and there are a lot of really cool programs um, uh, in, in law. Uh, so that actually has a couple different tracks which are worth paying attention to. The, um, there are tracks for individual well-being, well workplace well-being, law school well-being, and law firm well-being. So you can go to the programs associated with any of those individual tracks. Um, and that's from January 19th to 21st, the IWIL conference. Um, and then finally, the SJC Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing is hosting our next Legal Wellbeing Network meeting on Tuesday, February 15th from 1 to 2.15 p.m. Uh, and the Legal Wellbeing Network is really just for anyone who wants to come, share, learn about new innovative uh, practices, programs uh, that are happening to address well-being throughout the legal sector, whether it be in firms, in agencies, we've had a lot of different presenters come and give excellent sort of short presentations, uh, and then we uh, engage in some discussion about those. So that's a really great opportunity as well. Um, beyond that, a lot of you know this already, but I did want to highlight that the SJC Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing has established four working groups that are in the process of uh, developing concrete recommendations to sort of structurally address the well-being of lawyers uh, and law students from underrepresented populations in different legal sectors. So we have a working group for large firms, one for small and medium-sized firms, one for the public sector of legal agencies and the trial court and, and organizations like that, um, and one for in-house counsel. 
If you are interested in, in getting involved in any of those working groups, please don't hesitate to email me. Membership is still open, even though we started the process of uh, coming up with these ideas. Uh, so that's all I had to share today. Uh, thank you again all for spending this uh, January 6th, which I know is a emotionally fraught day for a lot of us uh, together. And uh, I'm hopeful that this is a great start for you to learn, for all of us to spread the word about how to report these incidents so that the trial court can really become a place that works for lawyers, uh, that is inclusive for clients, uh, that is inclusive for court users of all types, uh, and that we can make the uh, administration of justice uh, more inclusive for everyone. So thank you for your time. Thanks, everyone.